This episode was originally recorded and edited over two years ago. We were just getting started, and that's exciting. We're a little more silly, a little crazier, a little more raw, and our ideas were changing fast. As kind of a personal archaeologist, it's a treat seeing how our theologies evolve. Back then, Amanda didn't identify as Christian, and I wanted to believe in a personal God, but I don't think I had made that true leap of faith just yet. We were both a little less careful in how we used science and gender and theology. We were just figuring out how to do all this podcasting stuff. And as a side note, two years ago, I was going through and recovering from trauma. Very dark times. I covered it with necessary defense mechanisms. I was brasher, more self-absorbed, and more mansplaining. Mansplaininess has been something I've had to struggle with for a lot of years. The thing is, working on this podcast has made me a better person. And I'd love to thank Amanda and the online Broken Book community for showing me cool, better ways to be a human. It may be surprising that someone who is a Unitarian Universalist, like myself, actually really likes the idea of the Trinity. It does kind of go against the definition of Unitarian. Uh, yeah, definitely against the definition of Unitarian. <laughs> I think the idea of the Trinity has fallen out of favor in progressive religion, but I think that the reasons for why it has are a little bit outdated. And so I'd like to offer a defense of the Trinity and why it's a really great concept. Go for it. Okay, so the first thing that I think is pretty cool about the Trinity is just the way that the idea of Trinity actually arose, at least from what I was taught. So it's actually sort of scientific, considering that it was in a very pre-scientific era that the idea of the Trinity came about. So the idea of Trinity, that God is three and yet God is also somehow one, came out of a situation that was really confusing, which makes sense since it's sort of a confusing doctrine. Early Christians had this Jewish heritage, and from their Jewish heritage they understood that God was one. That's like one of the most important tenets of Judaism. It's right there in the top of the Ten Commandments. It's one of those things that you say, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's really important. And monotheism was one of the defining intellectual and cultural distinctives that made a Jew a Jew as opposed to everyone else. Exactly, exactly. And monotheism was a really interesting theological progress, I think. This idea that instead of there being all these different gods that are sort of uh, the god of this and the god of that and the god of this other thing, that there would just be one god that was in control of everything. It sort of a new idea that Jews came up with, and as far as I know, all monotheistic religions spring out of the source of Judaism. I think there's probably other traditions that are monotheistic, but the great, big, powerful, lots of members monotheistic religions, definitely. And back in ancient Rome, people really kind of liked the intellectual idea of the Jews. A lot of the philosophers appreciated Judaism as an ancient and intellectually compelling faith. Because, let's face it, monotheism, it's clean. It's straightforward. It's precise. It doesn't have much contradiction. Which, 
is why people are sometimes actually scared the Trinity now is for the exact same reasons. We want a very clean, precise, non-contradictory God. So we want to slightly edit out Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And that was exactly the contradictory situation that the early church was facing, because on the one hand, like I said, they had this Jewish background that was telling them, okay, God is one, we don't believe in many gods. But then on the other hand, they have the Gospels, and in the Gospels, Jesus talks about his father, who's God, but then also Jesus seems to be God, and also the Holy Spirit seems to be God. So what do you do when you have these, like, two conflicting ideas about what God is? God is both one, and also God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, you have the whole I am my own dad dilemma. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And so, basically, what I think is sort of scientific about the approach of the early church is they basically said, well, empirically, we have three gods, and also one god, so... We're just going to go with that. Logically, there has to be a trinity if you accept those two premises. Right. They accepted both of the premises, and then they dealt with the tension that that brought. And that was what all these early church councils were dealing with, the tension of like, wait, but if there's one god, but it's three gods, like, how does that work? Where are the lines? And like, how do we hold this tension? And I just think... It was really awesome that instead of, like, dismissing either the oneness of God or the threeness of God, they actually managed to, like, hold that tension. They were able to preserve sort of their integrity of, like, this was the oneness of God is part of our experience, but also the threeness of God is part of our experience, and we're not going to let go of either of those. We're going to try and hold the tension. And what they came across, this doctrine of the Trinity, this kind of bottom-down necessity doctrine out of lived experience is, in in my kind of counterintuitiveness, a much more compelling and exciting way of viewing God than basic, simple, clean monotheism. So that was like the early Christians' experience. Then in the Middle Ages and during sort of Christendom, I guess you could say, the idea of the Trinity was sort of taken on authority from those early councils, but it was also developed into some really beautiful theology, like you were saying, some really compelling stuff. For instance... If God is love, then before God created the world, who did God love? Well, if God is Trinity, then God loved God. And that, like, actually, like, holds up and makes sense. And this brought on this kind of strange dilemma that St. Augustine had to deal with, is God is love. God the Father loves God the Son. But that love between the Father and the Son is itself love, which is self God. So God the Holy Spirit is actually the love between the Father and the Son, which is shared in the entire world and creates the entire world. I, I think it's beautiful. It's it's like this idea of this this really healthy marriage, almost, right? Like, God the Father and God the Son. Oh, this sounds really unhealthy. Now I know, it sounds unhealthy. It's still beautiful, married. though. Let's just go with it. And creator and Redeemer? It. Can we say Creator and Redeemer, maybe? Will that make, make us feel less uncomfortable? Less uncomfortable, but it's still uncomfortable because it's kind of incest and it's kind of masturbation, <laughs> and we'll just go with it. God <laughs> the Father and God the Son are married. Are married, and the Spirit's the And they kid. have a good relationship. No, they're, no, the Spirit isn't the kid. That's the thing. The Spirit is their marriage. Oh, and we're the kids. We're the kids. So it's like the spirit's the sex and we're the offspring. Yeah. Yeah, basically. That's so but cool. 
what I really like about it is, like, it's so, um, like, God, so if God were, like, a single parent, sometimes if a single parent doesn't have a good support system, they end up needing their kid emotionally, right? Yeah, I've seen that. Not, not that that's all single parents, but like if you, if you are in a bad situation where you don't have a good community and a good support system, sometimes you can end up, um, or actually with married parents also who don't have good support systems or don't have a good support with each other, end up n- emotionally needing their children, um, which isn't very healthy for the children. But so the idea is like God doesn't emotionally need us because God has a good relationship with God's self. And, to be perfectly honest, in the books of the Bible where God doesn't have as good a relationship with God's self, God does become incredibly needy. And sometimes kid Israel has to kind of jump in aside and play the adult, which we see in Exodus a lot. Mm-hmm. Or mostly mostly Moses has to be the grown-up, I would say, in Exodus. But yeah. Anyway, so I think there's a lot of really beautiful theology built on this idea that at some point started being taken on authority that God is three and also God is one. So the problem was, then we hit, like, modernity, right? We hit the Enlightenment. And we start thinking, like, hey, science! We should believe things that make sense! We can figure these things out! We can actually find good, reliable answers to our questions, and we shouldn't just keep believing the things that we've been told. We should actually, like, go and figure things out for ourselves and decide whether the things we've been told were true or not. Which is awesome and great. I love science. I think science is awesome. And so it makes sense that at this point, people also start saying, Okay, I like believing things I understand. That makes sense. Three equals one does not make sense to me. I do not want to believe that anymore. And thus so much of the better parts of the Bible begin to crumble because the Bible kind of bathes in these contradictions and enjoys the contradictions. The last is first, the weak are strong, and that may work in a pre-modern worldview, but doesn't work so hard in a modern world. No, it doesn't work in a modern worldview. Yeah, those sorts of contradictions, they don't they don't work in a modern worldview. So in the 1500s is when you start seeing the ideas of Unitarianism like popping up, and then in the 1700s it really starts getting traction, and that's where you see the Unitarian church coming from. But modernity has more or less ended, and now we're in a... I wish. You wish? Oh, I it wish. It hasn't. Sure, I, I suppose it hasn't ended. No, modernity is the tyrant of our lives unfortunately but okay that's true unfortunately we now realize its flaws yes we can at least be a resistance to it that is true modernity is still around but we have this new thing called post-modernity which has realized some of the problems with modernity like hmm we sort of thought that in the past hundred years we would figure everything out but instead even though we've learned so much we've even more learned all of the things that we don't know and realized more and more that the more that we learn, the more that we realize we don't know yet. And to make matters even more complicated, we realize that there can be great truths and things that just aren't true. Yes. That art, emotion, crazy lived experiences can teach us things that are not internally consistent, are not rational, and still can form us and help us make good decisions. From a scientific perspective, 
that I'm coming from a little bit. I've learned lots of things that make no intuitive sense. Like, mass and energy are actually the same thing. What? Like, you can either know where the small particles are, or you can know how fast they're going, but you can't know both. Somehow, observing a particle can, like, cause it to act differently than it would if you weren't observing it. Like, these things are so weird. And then you get into dark matter and, like, black holes, and all that stuff is super, super weird. And it turns out that good old reliable Newtonian physics isn't really all that reliable. It just tends to work outside the quantum scale. So it turns out that what we used to think of as the hardest of hard sciences was more of a pragmatic cheat that wasn't quite true, but it just works. Yeah, 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 sure. So even the thing we thought was a hard science turned out to be postmodern. Indeed. But sort of like what you said, even though Newtonian physics isn't in a sort of cosmic sense at all scales true, it does actually teach us things that are true. And if we ignored it, we might get in trouble. Uh, we definitely would get in trouble. Our bridges would not work. Our houses would fall down. It would be bad. So truth in a postmodern world is elevated from rationality to pragmatism and experience. With with mystery surrounding it as well, I would say. And purposeful, intentional ambiguity. I think in modernity we got so excited about the fact that science could be hard. Like, science could actually, like, have good answers for things and, like, pre be, like, predictive. That we were like, science! All science is hard! All science is predictive and wonderful! And I think now we have a much healthier respect for, like, oh, this part of science is pretty hard. We're pretty sure that it's predictive. But then, like, these fields are, like, really soft. People come out with this one study and then they come out with this other study and they contradict each other. And we're not sure where that's going yet. And then you have fields like social psychology, which really just are statistical guesses. Right. And those are sciences now. Yeah, soft sciences, but... Yeah, sciences. Science as a whole is just becoming softer. Uh, softer and harder, though, because, like, there's parts that we're really sure about now, and I think it's reasonable to be really sure about, but then it's also, like, expanding in all directions. So basically, in a postmodern era, if light can be both a wave and a particle, then I feel like God could potentially be one and three. That just doesn't seem so crazy anymore. Why would we think that God would be less complicated than quantum physics? Less mysterious. And so this is why I think that the idea of Trinity should come back in favor in progressive religion. What do you think Trinity has to add to progressive religion nowadays? That is a really great question. <laughs> I want to know your answer to that question. <laughs> That's a cheat answer. I think you've thought about it more than I have. Well, I guess the point of the Trinity is that the reality of God comes from the relationship of God. Mm. The relation of the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Which is akin to the Old Testament view that God is defined partly as a God of the covenant. And right. God's existence and essence is partly founded on God's relationship with Israel. To extend that into our own lived experience, that would mean that God's existence and essence is partly founded in the spirit of ourselves and its connection to God. That God's very existence is partly based on our act of loving God and God's act of loving us. 
truth can be relational like that. And I think this is a way around some of the kind of arguments about, oh, is God something that's actually real or is God just a metaphor? Well, relationships exist and are real and give existence, but right. they don't exist quite the same way that an objective object exists. But they don't not exist the way a metaphor doesn't exist. They are a different kind of existence and a kind of truth and a kind of person. Like, my relationship with God is real, regardless about whether of whether God is real or not. Like, my relationship with God, if you have a relationship with God, that relationship is real. I would take it a few steps further than that. Though uh -huh. I don't think you would. I would take it a few steps further uh -huh. than that. Don't take any offense at this, Amanda. But you, as a human being, as a biological entity, a collection of a lot of skin that likes to have long hair and smiles a lot, you are not a person in and of yourself. I think that your soul, your personhood, the way you really exist in the universe comes about through how I see you, how your husband Jim sees you, how your community sees you and interprets you, how God sees you, interprets you, and how you interpret everything else. Mm. That your relational identity is the true Amanda, and that a mistake we make is we too closely connect our reality to our consciousness. Uh-huh. And even just our biological body. Now, I'm not saying that bodies don't matter. And I'm not saying that consciousness doesn't matter. But I'm saying that's not who we are. Right. Is that there's a part of you, Amanda, that only exists because it was created in my head. And then I get to share that Amanda with other people in every conversation I have. Where that emerging Amandaness just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that part of Amanda is just as much you as anything else. So a relational God helps us understand ourselves as relational. Oh, I'm going somewhere a little bit scarier than that. Scarier than that? I'm saying a relational God. I'm saying a relational God is a person the same way we are a person. Uh, uh-huh. That God, from a Christian perspective, human being, collection of skin and hair who likes to do carpentry, in relation with God and of ourselves and the spirit transcends to a greater soul, a greater humanity of Godness. I think we as humans exist as a trinity. We are three in one. What are the three? There's so many different ways to quantify it. And we're going to probably spend a later podcast going through many, 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 many different ways of looking at it. But I think it's our biological objective selves and consciousness mm -hmm. the world around us mm -hmm. and the relationship between us and the world the spirit and i think it's that spirit is where our deepest humanity the humanity that doesn't die that's where it's located hmm i like that take on immortality i'm not saying that's the only way we're immortal but i think that's one of the cool ways we're immortal yeah which means that when the Bible says that we are made in the image of God, I like to take that. Quite literally. Yeah, I want to take it way deeper than most people do. <laughs> I really want to be asking the fun questions. Like, okay, I need to be Christ-like. So how did I help create and organize the universe in the beginning of time like Jesus did? 
How was I crucified, dead, and buried, and then descended into hell? How is that part of my Jesus-like, Christ-like experience? And if I'm made in the image of God, how should I be worshipped and honored? What are the idols of Sam that should be avoided? (laughs) And how does your death and resurrection save the world? You forgot that one. It's an important question to ask, because sometimes I forget that my own death resurrection matters. And maybe that's a cool relational way, a cool postmodern way to be a very authentic and true Christian is to figure out how we are living the Christ narrative. We were talking earlier and you were saying that you've realized through partly maybe through some of these conversations, also through some other conversations you've been having recently, that you're actually a lot more orthodox than you've been thinking you were. I'm not even sure orthodox is the right word. I'm just a lot more Christian than I Okay, here's my confession, is that when I started this podcast, I was so embarrassed to be Christian and to share my faith. And the reason is because I've been living in a post-Christian landscape for a lot of years now. I talk about theology. I share about theology. Obviously, I'm a religious geek, but I had to distance myself so far from any communities and real identities as Christian that I thought of this podcast more as a post-Christian podcast than a Christian podcast. I thought of myself, I would call myself Presbyterian, but deep down inside, I don't think I acknowledge eternity within myself. In the first couple podcasts, we talked a lot about what it means to see things as authoritative, to see this top-down God that really matters, that we have a very high-stakes relationship with, that offers a certain level of divine truth. Yeah, and who can actually, like, stop us in our footsteps and say, like, hey, you're doing this wrong. Like, who can actually confront us? And who we can bargain with. Mm. Talk to. Yeah. Watch Netflix with. That would be nice. I I love watching Netflix with God. We share a lot of the same tastes. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I don't like Broad City as much as God does, but... uh... So, one of my really, really good friends listened to one of our first podcasts, and she commented and asked, Sam, why aren't you coming clear about how Christian you are? And I was a little confused. So, wait, what do you mean by that? And and she explained, and she explained, well, you needed to make clear that, unlike Amanda, you really do see the Bible's authoritative. And I paused, because... It'd been years since I would have actually said the Bible's authoritative. I didn't think of the Bible's authoritative. I wouldn't have said that. But then she said something along the lines of, kind of rolls her eyes at me and says, Sam, come on. You think the Bible's authoritative. Have you ever listened to yourself talk about the Bible? (laughs) Do you see how much reverence you give it, how much you care about it? And I realize... The Bible is my image of God. That's how I understand God. That's how the truth of God is revealed to me. And reading the Bible and talking about the Bible and overthinking about the Bible is a massive part of my spirituality. (coughs) Screw everything. The Bible is authoritative for me. And remember how I talked about finding empathy for the Bible, even the parts I don't like. Mm -hmm. I realized what I was really doing there. This is going to sound insane. But this notion of finding the empathy and truth of every part of the Bible is a rescue and redefinition 
of the doctrine of biblical infallibility. Yeah, it totally is. I, I, I noticed it, but I didn't notice that I noticed it when you were talking about that in those earlier podcasts. What you were saying is you didn't actually get to pick and choose which parts of the Bible were true at all. Like, you actually decided that you had to wrestle with every part of the Bible. And implicitly, but not explicitly acknowledged, some kind of top-down authority, mm-hmm. even if it's not the traditionally soon. But to me, to kick out a book of the Bible, say, you know what, Nahum? You're a dick. You're out. You're fired. To me, that's so similar to kicking someone out of church you don't like. Hmm. Or disowning a family member. Or not visiting someone in prison. The authoritativeness of the Bible for me helped me realize the authoritativeness of existence in some ways. In that I don't want to ever not have empathy for a speck of creation. Hmm. And the Bible constantly keeps me anchored in the entire human experience, forcing me to love the entire human experience when. Honestly, I just want to love the things I like. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. There are so many things that can be really damaging, I think, about the doctrine of biblical infallibility, and I think it can be used in some really negative ways. And I, I really like the way that you've uh, chosen to reinterpret it. Well, I agree. I think it's a crappy doctrine in 99.9 instances a lot of the time because for one thing it leads to really two-dimensional readings of the bible a two-dimensional understanding of truth and it's a very modernist conception this is true you either reject it or you don't right. and that helps and create that atheism the- theism false binary right, we've right. talked about and the idea that you can just say you know this is what the bible says about x and be so certain of it so I'm not particularly bothered the fact that progressive churches don't teach a form of infallibility. And I don't really feel like I had any desire to bring it back. I just accidentally brought it back through lived bottom-up experience. I now have a doctrine of biblical infallibility. I didn't ask for one, but I have it. And So you got a top-down doctrine from a bottom-up experience. That's how all top-down experiences come from. Because if you're going to hear God speak, you got to listen to God. It's true. And I think these revelations have helped me really just accept the basic foundational truth is I'm a Christian. I'm not nearly as much of a heretic as I pretend to be. I can talk a lot about how Jesus is a great teacher and a good person, but that doesn't excite me. That doesn't interest me. I'm excited about how Jesus is God. That empowers me. Uh, I don't like thinking about how Christianity isn't true. I like thinking about how it is true. How the Trinity informs my life. How the Bible maps out my lived experience and existence. And I like looking forward to whatever deconstructed, awesome eschaton God has in store. And I've been experimenting a lot more with prayer as something that's a little bit more than just meditation. Prayer where... I dare to make suggestions to God <laughs> and disagreements to God. But here's here's what I started doing. And I had to get this from the Bible because it's so counterintuitive both to conservative and liberal Christian culture is 
I make arguments to God now when I pray, uh, which is something that happens all through the Bible, but not through Christian prayer tradition. That is true. Is that the prophets are constantly trying to explain to God, or even better than that, they manipulate God's ego. They cajole God. Yep. God is an active person in conversation. God, you don't want to kill the Israelites because that would make you look bad. So true. I mean, it's it's so much the relationship between kids and parents. Yeah. And sometimes the parent thinks they're in control, but the kids are manipulating the conversation topic. And that's where you get books like a lot of Hosea is just the kid cajoling the parent and so i've been trying to actually explain to god why god should act certain ways and oftentimes the act of explaining that helps me kind of figure out why god's doing what god's doing (laughs) that's so honest and i realized i think this is the god i've been looking for Mm -hmm. is not a reality god it's not a god that is existence but a god that you can talk to have relationship with a god who can maybe make mistakes and be wrong the personal relationship god i think personal i'm scared of the word personal because it can be a very collective relationship mm-hmm. intimate god mm. and maybe it is a personal god but not an individualistic god mm-hmm. but how do you find that god it's so hard because pre-modern times maybe you can find god on mount olympus maybe god's going to show up on your door and you get to wrestle with god and Get your hip dislocated. That sounds lovely. Then I guess Christians got the answer because Jesus came and Jesus is God. And God was a person. And we didn't have to just hope that God will show up on our doorstep because God did show up on our doorstep. Yeah. But then but then there was the ascension. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. I agree. We should explain to God why Jesus shouldn't have ascended. In some ways, the ascension stopped Jesus from letting us down, though. It's so true. Jesus decided not to be one of those movies that, like, continues to have, like, sequels and, like, thirds yeah. and fourth and just, like, ruin, yeah, it, just ruin itself. Yeah, four movies and then stop. We didn't need gospel number five. Jesus is like Firefly! Yes, Jesus is so popular because he got canceled after three. And that's why he has that's why he has a cult following. But the part that's most important about Jesus never died even on the cross. And can't ascend. Because he can't leave us. And that's the soul of Jesus in relationship with the world. The Jesus that exists in Trinity. The true Jesus. The relationship Jesus. I'm not sure which way you mean that. Do you mean that in the way that you were talking about me existing in yes. your in your relationships with other people? As part of your existence, but also that's just one small corner. Uh-huh. So, like, in the sense that we're still talking about Jesus, we're still relating to Jesus, we're still relating to other people through the experiences recorded of Jesus, and so Jesus we're is still here. We're still changing Jesus. Jesus is still responding to us. We're still changing our mind because of Jesus. Jesus is still thinking of new ideas. And we know Jesus is still thinking of new ideas because people still talk about how Jesus is influencing movements. Uh-huh. Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. Yeah. Jesus is a profound leader for us and how we see the world. 
and Jesus keeps on going. But I'm not really arguing for the exclusivity of Jesus' divinity, or I'm not even trying to make the claim that every person's actually God or something like that. I don't find those questions or claims compelling or really that interesting a topic. The fact is, it's so much like what Paul talks about. By Jesus stepping in and being God in old school, very orthodox terms, that opens up Godhood to us. Mm-hmm. And not in a sense of, if Jesus can be God, we can all be gods, but in the sense that Jesus leads the way for our own apotheosis, our own deification, which sounds really heretical, but it's one of the oldest doctrines in the book. And we get to share in God's godhood the same way God shares in our humanhood. And I think the fact I can make these claims and have come to this grounding lets me participate in mainstream Christianity, if not in conservative Christianity. I feel more comfortable being in a Presbyterian church. Uh, I feel more comfortable praying with people. And I feel more like I'm actually a part of the body of Christ rather than kind of a fingernail clipping of the body of Christ. That's awesome. You feel like you've found a spiritual community where you're able to be at home. The very claim that the church is a body of Christ is a sign that there's just a little speck of postmodernism already in existence in the earliest reaches of Christianity. That a bunch of people talking together, praying together, worshiping together, sharing the sacrament makes up a physical entity that is in some sense Christ. Reflects the same kind of logic that creates a trinity where one is three. And maybe that's what the Bible is about all along, is how things don't have to be the way they are. How justice can be mercy, the sinful people can be forgiven, the king is a servant, and the dead are alive. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with clouds that no prayer can get through. You have made a scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees.